Before we turn back to God's holy words, let's bow to God in prayer and ask for his help. Forgive us, Lord, if we may come to you and come before you with a lack of expectation. Lord God, we realize that you are the all-powerful God. We should be quaking as we come to you, but there should be a sense of anticipation and expectation as we come to your word. And we do ask, Lord God, that you would surprise us with your grace this evening. And we pray, Lord God, that you would utterly reshape our lives. We pray that you would send us out of here, changed people, having had an encounter with you uh, through your word. Uh, Lord, you are the one who has fed the masses with a few loaves and fish. Lord God, we ask that you would nourish us this evening with the bread of life, your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name, for his name's sake. Amen. One of the... Um, areas, I think, of greatest struggle in the Christian life, one of the areas of near constant battle is when it comes to uh, our prayer life, when it comes to prayer. I'm sure immediately you would agree with that, that it is not just me, that because of our sin, because of how easily you and I get distracted, especially maybe first thing in the morning when we try to pray because of the coldness, uh, the lukewarmness, if you allow that, uh, of our heart towards God. Prayer, prayer is a daily battle. It is a daily fight for the Christian. One a scholar wrote this. He said that most of the problems in the church, they stem uh, from maybe too much time on our hands, but certainly from not enough time on our knees. Most of the problems in our church stem from not enough time on our knees. I I doubt there would be many of us that would disagree with that sentiment. It is the case that we struggle as Christians, even people who are recipients of such grace, we struggle to sincerely and earnestly seek our Father in prayer. Well, this evening, as Paul returns from his digression in verse 6, his digression about salvation and the very nature of salvation, as he returns from that, what he does is he turns to this great subject, the subject of prayer, what Calvin, of course, called the chief exercise of the Christian faith. And please believe me, When I say to you that what Paul says here tonight can help you, Christian friends, in your battle to pray to your God, what this can do is give us tonight a heart for praying and praying for each other. And it can also this evening give us actually a paradigm, a pattern for how it is that we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, how we can pray, how we should pray for the other people you're seeing in the room and for those online. So I would ask you please to have Philippians open 
in front of you, Philippians chapter 1 from verse 7. And we'll, we'll see three things this evening. First of all, we'll see here a love that runs over into prayer. That's the first thing I want us to consider. A love that runs over, overflows into prayer. Okay. Now, it wasn't actually until I was living in a really ethnically uh, diverse place down in London that I actually realized that we Scots have a bit of a reputation. I didn't realize this, but I knew we had a reputation for certain things, but I didn't realize that we had a reputation for being rather reserved. Um, I don't know whether you agree with this or not, but that's certainly the reputation that, that, that we have. A little bit, reputation for being a little bit standoffish. Maybe you see the idea compared to the, maybe to South Americans, or maybe just the South Americans that I know, that we're a wee bit more restrained. Maybe some of the Africans that I know, compared to them, we're a little bit more reserved. You know the idea that I'm talking about, don't you? Surely you do. If somebody comes in for a hug, they're more likely to get a handshake, aren't they? Or are they coming for a hug? They're more likely to get a shove. Uh, possibly, it depends on who's coming in for, for that hug. Well, whether or not this is an accurate reflection on who we are as Scots, I do wonder, half-jokingly, whether it is the case for the Philippians. Because have a look with me at verse 7, would you, friends, please? Do you see how Paul carries on here? He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. And you can see what he's doing, can you? Can you see what he's doing? He's almost justifying how he's dealt with the Philippians. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago, can you? You remember what we noticed? Paul has been gushing <laughs> in his affection for these people. He's been talking about how much joy they give him and he's effusive in his thanksgiving and his love. And it's almost as though he, he's almost as though he kind of backtracks and says, no, I'm going to defend this. It's actually right that I, it's right as a Christian that I feel this way about you. Well, if you really are a, a reserved, stiff upper-lipped, restrained Brit, I probably have to warn you, because the first thing that we have to do is notice how Paul here, he doubles down on the strength of feeling that he has for his fellow Christians. And uh, let me just say this to you. You're going to need your Bible in your hands. I just want to point out a few things that show us that the extent of his affection for his fellow Christians. So will you look at these with me? First, if you look at verse 7, notice where he has the Philippians. Do you notice it in verse 7? Where does he have them? Verse 7, he says, I have you in my heart. Now, let, let me just tell you what you already know. That though we think about the heart as the, the place of emotion, don't we think about the heart as the seat of lovey-dovey stuff? It's not like that in Scripture, is it? In, in Scripture, yes, the heart is the seat of emotion, but it's way more than that. Biblically speaking, the heart is the seat of intellect and consciousness and, and, and even our motives. Did you see it? Such is Paul's affection, such is his strength of feeling that these Philippians really do play a massive role in his life. Let's keep going, though. Look into verse 8. Notice now how he feels for them. Can you see it? 
What does he say? He says, I, oh, how I long for you. Let's, let's be ever so careful with that. I wonder what you think he's saying there. How I long for you. You know, we, we could think that that's Paul yearning just to be with the Philippians. Oh, I, I have such affection. I want to be with you guys. I want to be amongst you guys. Now, that's part of it, definitely, but it's not all because the way that Paul uses this term longing in the book of Philippians, it shows us actually that there he is yearning for their spiritual advance. Does everybody in the room see the idea? So it's, I yearn for you. Yes, I I, I yearn to be with you. I, I yearn to be amongst you, but I really yearn for you to be growing in grace. Everyone with me? Do you see the sense of feeling already? Where is he? He has them in his heart. He's longing for them. But then notice the seriousness of this. If you look at the start of verse 8, this is is a dramatic thing, I think, at the the beginning of verse 8. I'll read it to you. You tell me what it is. God can testify to how how I feel. What's that? Isn't it something to consider? That it's almost as though Paul is going on oath here. God can testify. Paul understands it's really only God who knows his heart. It's only God who can bear witness to how Paul really feels for the Philippians. So what does Paul do? It's almost as though Paul kind of calls God to to the courtroom to bear witness, to testify to the Philippians of how, how strongly Paul feels for them. And then the last of these, the best of them, Notice the intensity. Look at the end of verse 8. This is the last one. Look at the end of verse 8. God can testify how I long for you, long for all of you, and then this, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you know what that is? Literally, wait for this. How I long for you with the entrails of Christ Jesus. How I long for you with the inside of Christ. It's Paul saying that, see in my affection, I am stepped. Step and step with Christ Jesus. As Jesus loves you, I love you. As Jesus cares for you, so I care for you. Surely all of us are, are wondering about this. Isn't it amazing to see the strength of feeling that Paul has for his fellow believers? Now let me make you feel incredibly uncomfortable. Personally, I long to be able to say this of you. I long to be able to speak of a similar intensity of love for my fellow Christians. Does that sound odd to you? Surely it doesn't. Surely as a Christian, you feel the same way. I mean, don't you long in your heart to have a love for your fellow believer that mirrors what you see in Scripture there? Don't you long to love your brothers and sisters at St. Peter's with that same intensity, that same strength of feeling? You do, don't you? So we cry out to God, don't we? How does that happen, though? My heart is so cold to my brothers and sisters. How does that develop? Praise God. He tells you. Read it with me. Halfway through verse 7. See, what, what's the basis for this love? Do, do you notice? Where does it spring from? I love you like this. Strength of feeling. Why? For whether I am in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, 
all of you, all of you have shared in God's grace with me. Do, do you see it? Do you see the answer? Where does this strength of feeling come from? It comes from not just a shared gospel experience, but it actually comes from a shared gospel endeavor. Isn't that what this is about? How can Paul speak this way of the Philippians? Because all the way through, the Philippians have been supportive of him through thick and thin. You can see it, can't you? Whether it is in the good times. You know, when Paul has been free to proclaim, defend, confirm the gospel, or whether it's in the really awful times, like here, imprisonment, whether it's the good times or the bad times, what have the Philippians done? They've been in the trenches with him. They've been there for him. They've been there with him, sending support if he needs it, sending personnel when he needs it, experiencing their own hardships over in Philippi. Do, do you see it? The waters of this affection, this Christian affection, they come from that fountain of shared ministry experience, from that fountain of shared gospel endeavor. Now, for a moment, let's think about ourselves you and I here, if you, if you were here this morning, maybe you'll remember that we mentioned unity ever so briefly. Do you remember this morning? Unity, it comes when our eyes are fixed upon Jesus Christ together. I want us momentarily just to build on that idea. And I want to ask you, I was thinking about this. We are not, we've not all been at St. Peter's for decades, have we? I wonder how many churches... <laughs> We've been to, if you were to count it all up in here, we've been to many churches over the course of our lives, haven't we, together? I suppose my question for you is, how have the churches you've been to in the past, how have they sought to nurture affection between fellow believers? you've, You've all been to different churches in the past, right? Lots of different churches. As you look back in your experience, how have those churches tried to nurture relationships between Christians and, and affection? Can I, can, maybe you can think about that. I'll tell you about mine. So my experience. So if there's churches and they're desperate to build relationships between believers, let's nurture affection. How will we do it? Let's have a men's curry night. That's the usual thing. Or, or let's try and have affection between, between people. What will we do? Let, let's have a ladies pudding night. Right? Why is it always with the puddings, ladies? I don't, I, I don't know. Or, or five-a-side football. Or, or let's, let's hill-walking club. That sort of idea. Now, please hear me honestly. Nothing wrong with that, is there? I mean, some of that, some of that can be absolutely integral. It can be tremendous. It can help build relationships. But do you not see the lesson in Philippians? Surely it's that true Christian affection, true affection between believers, it doesn't come so much when we're socializing together. True affection comes when we are working together to make known the name of Jesus Christ. Not just socializing together, serving together, working together to herald the name of Jesus Christ to an unbelieving city and an unbelieving world. And so because of that, I want to be as practical as we can be, and I want to suggest at least two things for you for the week ahead. I would suggest, first of all, that if you're a Christian, first of all, I would encourage you to ask some of the other people in the room 
Who are they trying to witness to at this point in their Christian experience? To ask some of the Christians you know, who are you trying to speak to about Jesus? Why? Why ask them? So that you can support them in that. So that you can join them in the trenches. So you can be praying that that person might be saved and might come to Jesus Christ. I won't suggest that to you. Ask, ask people, who are you witnessing to? Second thing, I would encourage you to tell some of the people here who it is that you are trying to reach just now with the good news of Jesus Christ and why, same reason, that these people here might support you, that we might be working together, that they might pray for that person that you love, that you were desperate to come to Christ, that we would pray for that person to be saved. Because what do we see here? We see that it is knowing Christ and it is together seeking to make Christ known that really breeds affection. And an affection, an affection we're just about to see, that leads to prayer. So first thing, a love that runs over into prayer. Second thing that we see here from Paul is a love that is requested in prayer. A love that is requested in prayer. Now, the start of the sermon, I mentioned a few hurdles or obstacles to sincere prayer. What stops us praying sincerely? A cold heart towards God. Sometimes we, we, we say a lack of time given over to prayer. What stops you in sincere prayer? A distracted mind, perhaps. There's, we could go on. But I do think there is uh, one obstacle that is seldom spoken about in the life of the church. And that's that sometimes we quite simply do not know what to pray for people. Isn't that right? Sometimes we just do, we do not have the words. Somebody in the church comes to mind that we do not know what to pray for that person. Isn't that the case? Now, most obviously, that's for the people we don't really know in the congregation. In a congregation the size of St. Peter's, there'll be people you don't perhaps know all that well, and you don't know what to pray for them. But isn't it true that sometimes, even when we know a person really, really well, sometimes we struggle to verbalize prayer. Sometimes we struggle to know, what should I be praying for that person? Well, here, from telling the Philippians that he prays for them. You, you see that in verse 4, don't you? He's telling them, you know, and, and all my prayers for all of you. So he's, you know, he's told them that he prays for them. What Paul does now is he tells them actually what he prays. So he moves now into the content of his prayer for his brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi. So aren't we wanting to know what this is? Like what sort of prayer comes out of that heart of genuine Christian affection for your brothers and sisters? What's the content? Can we just look at this? Look at verse 9. I could just skim verse 9, even the first bit. This is my prayer that you love. Love me, right? You know, we, we could <laughs> could make uh, we could have a very short sermon, and I could I could say to you, uh, Paul um, prays for love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. We could just leave it there, could we? Do you see that? Or Paul prays for an increasing love. We could just full stop benediction, 
We could leave, leave the room. Now, that would maybe be fine, but it would be certainly vague. <laughs> Wouldn't it, Paul prays for a, a growing love for our brothers and sisters? That's, that's kind of vague. So let me at least uh, mention one or two aspects of this, please. Okay? Please follow these. First of all, the nature of this prayer, Paul is praying for a love that acts. Active love. See, if... if I was to suggest that we went out of the building tonight and we went into, if we went to Perth Road together and we were to speak to the people that we met in Dundee this evening and if we were to ask them what springs to mind uh, when they hear about true love and real love, I wonder what, I wonder what images, what, what responses we would get from the people of the West End of Dundee What do you think about with true love? I reckon that people would talk about some romantic comedy that they've watched on Netflix recently. Something like, I would name a romantic comedy, but (laughs) I don't know any. (laughs) So they would mention a romantic comedy, or they would perhaps mention some song, some lyrics to some dreadfully soppy R&B song as well. Perhaps they would do that. That's true love. What we have to be clear about this evening is that when Paul is praying for an abounding love amongst Christians, this is not a sentiment. This is not a feeling, is it? It's not gushy. What Paul is talking about here and praying for is a type of behavior. And as I look at you and as I get to know you, I realize you know that as mature Christians in the faith, don't you? A love that acts. Think about what Paul says in Romans 12. What is this sort of love? It's a love that demonstrates devotion, isn't it? We seek to outdo each other in showing honor. What's this sort of love that we're dealing with tonight? You know, don't you? It's service. Sacrificial service. It's service of the other people, the other saints at St. Peter's, even when it is dreadfully inconvenient to serve these people. Even when that service is utterly and completely unreciprocated, that's when it's love, an active love. And of course, where do we see it most clearly? Everybody could say it, couldn't you? We see it most clearly at the cross of Calvary. What does 1 John 3 say? Listen, this is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and, and, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is not vague, is it? What is Paul praying for for his fellow Christians? A love that works and grafts and serves. A love that is active. But it's also a love that is already enjoyed. I need your help with this. Um, Can I ask you to to look back at verse 9? And I'll tell you why. There's a word that I want you to zero in on and to think about. Let's, let's read it from the very beginning. I'll stop abruptly, but let's read it from, from, from the beginning of verse 9. There's a word that's important here. And this is my prayer that, next word, your love. You see why that's important? 
that this is, this sacrificial love, something that the Philippians already possess to some extent. It's your love that Paul wants to grow. Do you see it? That Paul is not praying that God would bestow something new on this congregation. Paul is praying that God would enhance something that these Christians already possess. In fact, I suppose it's Bible trivia time, but in fact, how well do you know the letter of 2 Corinthians? Oh, I'm sure you know it well, don't you? certainly know, don't you, that when Paul writes to Corinth there, he writes about money. Do we know that? Yes, we know that. And what does he do in 2 Corinthians? Paul encourages the Corinthians to show this sort of love in the way that they give money, give generously, demonstrate this love. Now, wait, think about it. I'll get to the Bible trivia question for you in a a moment. But think about what does Paul do? Paul, for the Corinthians, holds up an example for them. And it's an example of another group of Christians who are exemplary in the love, the sacrificial love that they show. Here's the Bible trivia question. Which group of Christians, which congregation does Paul hold up to the Corinthians as an example of this self-sacrificial love? The Macedonian Christians. These Christians The Philippian Christians held up as an example of this sort of sacrificial love. And isn't that immensely challenging for you and for me? Because if you're anything like me, what do you think about when you think through our sacrificial love of your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church? If you're anything like me, you think, I knock it out of the park. (laughs) Isn't that how we think sometimes? We think of serving each other, trying to love each other, praying for each other. I'm doing that. I've got that nailed. That's fine. I'm, I'm doing this. I love you. Friends, if even the people Scripture holds up as an example of this, if even they need to be prayed for that their love would grow, how much more do you, how much more do do I need to pray for an increasing love, this love to abound? This prayer is not just something that you ought to pray for the rest of the people in this room. This is a prayer that should infuse your own prayer life for yourself, for your own heart. But then the third aspect of this love is that it's a love guided by wisdom. Can I ask you to look back at verse 9? Now, look how it ends. Do you you notice? Do you notice that there's a couple of, there are two modifiers. Let's see if we can find them. How, does, how is this love modified? Do you notice? It's a, a love that is informed, first of all, by knowledge. Listen, please. That is a spiritual knowledge. That is a knowledge primarily of God, a knowledge that comes out of God's Word. We understand. Knowledge informed, love informed by knowledge. What's the second modifier? Do you see it there? This love is also to be modified by depth of insight. That's where knowledge You know, the rubber of knowledge hits the road of life, you know, discernment and how to live. And if you think about that, please linger on it for a moment. If you do that, do you not agree that is radically countercultural for the life of the church? Because I, I think it's surely true, surely we know this is true, that in general in the West and in the UK, and I presume in Scotland, there tend to be two types of churches. Isn't that right? 
There tend to be two types of churches. You have on one hand, churches that are all about love. Tends to be the more liberal church. Love without boundaries. Love of love. You can be anything you want. It's got to be inclusive. Love, be whoever you want to be. It's all about love on one hand. On the other hand, what other types of church do we have? We have churches that are all about knowledge. <laughs> Cold, hard doctrine. Do you see it? Isn't it fascinating to see that Paul prays for a congregation? And he prays that those two things are intertwined. Do you see it? That a congregation, a biblical congregation, yes, it has to have doctrine. It has to have truth. has to have knowledge, but a knowledge that's warmed up, warmed up by Christian love. But it's a congregation that has to have love, but within the boundaries of Scripture. Do you see a love that is informed by God's Word? So I ask you, in the mornings, in the evenings, throughout the day, are you struggling to know what to pray for the rest of the people in the room? Like, do you struggle to know what to pray for me? Do you struggle to know what to pray for your elders, for the, the people that you don't really know? Surely I can say to you, now you know. Now you know. We go into the week and we follow this example, don't we? We pray that our love would grow and abound. How A love that acts, a love we already possess. But a love, a love that is guided by God's holy inerrant word. And then the last thing, the third thing. So we've seen a love that runs over into prayer. We've seen that it's a love that is requested in prayer. And then thirdly, a love that results in praise. I'll say it again, a love that results in praise. I, I, uh, I think there's an objection that uh, some might level uh, all that Paul has said uh, thus far here, especially uh, from verse 9. I think the objection could be, is this really all that critical? Do, do you see the objection? Do you follow the objection of all the things that we could pray for as Christians, you and I, in a city like Dundee, with all poverty and unbelief and all the decay that we see around us, all the illnesses we, we see, of all the things in the world to pray, the objection would be, is, you know, why pray for this love within the church to abound? Is it, is it, it doesn't seem all that critical. There's the objection. Well, as Paul closes this section, what he does is he shows us the outcome of this love. Um, he shows us the results of this love. And I think if we get to grips with it, it, we will see tonight very clearly as we leave this room just why this prayer is so utterly critical for you and I to pray. So what are the goals? What are the outcomes? Why would we pray? Really, why would you go home tonight? Tonight? And pray that we abound in, in this sort of... Why would we do that? The first thing I want you to notice is that we're able to choose wisely. So that we're able to choose wisely. Look at verse 10, please. Verse 10. 
So Paul's, Paul's saying, I pray for this love, and I'm, I love you, I, I have this strength of feeling for you, it, it leads me to pray for love for you. Why? So that you may be able to discern what is best. The idea, if you like, is the idea of test driving a car. So have, have, you, have you done that? Probably not in the, 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 the recent pandemic, but some of us in the past maybe have test driven a car. Even if you have never been a test driver of a car, you know why somebody would do it, don't you? Because that person has got a choice to make and there's lots of money involved in this. It's a big decision to make. You don't want to make that decision. You don't make a wrong choice when you're test driving and choosing a car. So you, you test drive it because you have a choice to make. It's a similar idea. Christian friend, you and I on a daily basis, look at our lives. We have choices to make as the people of God on a daily basis, don't we? Like where are we going to serve Jesus Christ? What career What university are we going to go to? Who are we going to speak to about Jesus? When am I going to speak to that person about Jesus? What should I say when I go to speak to that person about Jesus? Choices all over the place. So do you see it? Paul's saying we pray for this knowledge-infused love. Why? So that we might know to choose well and choose well for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. What I want you to appreciate though, is that Paul's logic and his reasoning, it burns with intensity and it grows. So what's the next reason here? Have a look. Read on, please, in verse 10. Read on with me. So why pray? Why would you go home tonight and pray for this love? He says, so that we may be, look at these words, we may be pure and blameless on, on, the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, every single one of us in the room, we understand what Paul's looking at. We understand his field of vision. What is he looking at? As with verse 6, he's looking at Christ's return. He's thinking about the parousia. But what are these terms here in verse 10? I mean, the the, the fruit of righteousness, we understand. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, we, we understand that love, peace, joy, so forth. But look at those ones. Pure, blameless on that day. What we have to understand are these are not the normal terms that Paul would use. What we've got here is the idea of us praying for this love so that on the day of Christ Jesus, you and I might be found to have lived a life of sincerity and integrity as Christians. That we might be found to have lived a life that causes no brother to stumble or to fall. I wonder if you are asking that objection. Are you asking, is this prayer really important? I mean, is this material tonight? Is it really worth your attention? Don't you see it? This love is something that by God's grace will see us standing perfected on the day of Christ Jesus' return. And I, I, I wonder this as a close. Do you know Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture? Anyone know it? A few northern heads? Yeah. I love that because Fraser's nodding his head. We're all surprised that Fraser does not know Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. Fraser, you would love it. I'll tell you why you would love it. 
Because Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture is a piece of work that ends not with symbols or timpani, but it is a piece of work that ends with fireworks. Right? If you're going to write a piece of music, that's how you want to end, right? With fireworks. Well, I've said to you that Paul's logic is intensifying here. And it's building up. And I love to to think that perhaps that's what he's got in view here. Because you ready for the way he ends? Look at this with me. Look at verse 11. Look at the end of verse 11. Why should you go home tonight and pray that we all abound in love? Look at it. Because ultimately it will result in the glory and the praise of God. Isn't that the most wonderful motivation for you as a Christian? Maybe we're asking, why would I pray this prayer? This does not seem all that important. Why? Because in the last Christ, Jesus shall return. And in that moment, the change that God has brought about in you, Christian friend, that change is going to be revealed. Now you think about that moment. In that moment, our almighty, eternal God, before every single eye of everyone that's ever lived, God shall be praised and glorified. The God who has effected the change in your heart, he shall be praised and praised for the change he has brought about in you and me, every one of his people. Friends, that is what is at stake here. That is what is on the line So I ask you, what are we waiting for, really? Don't we go home tonight? Don't we go home and don't we pray? Don't we pray that we might grow in this beautiful, glorious love? Don't we pray this? Pray it for me. Pray it for my family. Pray it for the church. Pray it for yourself. And I I end with the elementary mistake that our society keeps making about Christianity. It's so frustrating and heartbreaking, isn't it? And I end with it because maybe you're guilty of thinking this way tonight. What's the mistake that our society makes about biblical Christianity? All the time, they think the essence of the gospel, the essence of biblical Christianity is pull your socks up. Isn't that what society portrays Christianity as? As though Paul were writing to the Philippians and saying, I love you guys. Can you try a bit harder so that when Christ comes back, he's pleased with you? As though that were the essence of biblical Christianity. Isn't that heartbreaking to see people under that misconception? In light of that, do you not agree that the most important words of this section are found at the end of verse 10? The most important words of all. Because Paul reminds you and he reminds me that any good fruit, anything, anything worthwhile... It only comes through Jesus Christ. Yes, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared already righteous. But Paul is reminding you tonight that we even owe Jesus Christ our present transformation by grace. It is all of the Lord Christ himself. If you are not a Christian, given the subject matter this evening. Surely you see what you need to do. Don't you? Friend, you need desperately to pray. You need to go home on bended knee 
and you need to plead with God for salvation. You need to plead with God to forgive you for your sins. You need to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. You need to pray for Christ. You need to pray to Christ. You need to pray to Him because He is the one from whom all blessings flow. Friends, let's bow our heads. Let's pray to God. Gracious Lord, we do pray to you and we, we cherish your word. We thank you for this wonderful letter, Philippians. Lord, we thank you for the way that Paul can write so honestly, but with such uh, tenderness for his fellow Christians. We ask, Lord God, that you would give us a similar love for our brethren in this room and those at home. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to work together to make known the name of Jesus Christ. But we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what you are doing in your people, all by your grace, not by us, but by you. We thank you that one day we will see with our eyes the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to go into this week seeking to worship Jesus in gratitude for the wonder of the cross. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.